All right, as we close out this series, it's called Out of Bounds, um, and it's talking about the things that we can't talk about, primarily because we feel like sometimes we, if we don't align with what culture says and some of the things that we're facing, the tension in our culture, um, you know, it's rejected, it's, it's, it's kind of turned aside, it's as Christians, we've lost that influence, especially in, in the market square, in, the, in, in our society, um, to really have the influence we maybe at one time had when we were a majority. And so, um, and that's, and I want you to hear, like, I'm not complaining about that. I just want to, I just want us to understand that we, we really are called to engage and have these conversations in our culture, not to back away just because they've made it sound like we can't have these conversations. Yeah, with me? Nod your head, yeah? All right, so what we have to know, though, is where we're coming from in those conversations. So we said that I can't recap the last few weeks. These are just three quick highlights. 51% of Americans, according to a Barna Group study, said that they have a biblical worldview. But when they were asked follow-up questions about their worldview, only about 6% of American adults actually have one. Okay, they actually hold to it, meaning that there's a lot of other pluralism and, and humanistic worldviews that have kind of infiltrated and hijacked Christianity and people that claim to have a biblical worldview because we get these arguments about his truth and my truth and your truth source and my truth source. And uh, the reality is, as followers of Christ, we have a truth source, an absolute truth source. And this comes from our theme verse in 2 Timothy. It says that all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is, say the word out loud, true, and to make us realize what is what? Wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong, and then it teaches us to do what's right. It has a purpose as well. Keep going. God uses it to prepare and equip. This is the point of Scripture, to prepare and equip us to do every good work. He's called us to make disciples. He's called us to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is the call. This is the, the mission of our church. This is the, what we do to humbly point everyone to absolute hope. He's given us his word to help us, to prepare us and equip us to be able to do this. But one of the, we've talked about so many different cultural things over the past several weeks. Again, I, all I can tell you is just go back and watch it and look at it and listen to it and maybe take some notes and ask some questions later on. We'll be glad to revisit those with you. But one of the reasons we struggle as, as, as followers of Christ and as people to engage in these conversations, especially as Christians, is because we struggle with, go ahead and go to the next line. We struggle with the f- watching has John, John described Jesus living out his life in the fullness of grace and truth. This is how John described Jesus, his Savior. The problem is that for most of us, we get stuck, not living in the fullness of anything, but the tension of grace versus truth. You know, well, what matters more right now, that God loves you or that you're wrong, right? We we, we struggle with the tension of that. Like we struggle with, was this a truth moment or is this a grace moment? How many parents have ever struggled with this, right? We, we do struggle with this as parents, right? Do I beat the child, <laughs> right? Or do I, do I have this moment of clearly correcting them and showing grace and love, right? As parents, we, we struggle with this as parents. We struggle with this across the board as people, when, especially when it comes to what the Bible calls sin and just everything else. So that's why we're, we're, we're kind of tackling. This is the theme of trying to tackle this series. Before we dive into our Jesus encounter, because we've been using the encounters that Jesus had uh, uh, to dive in every week, I do get to get two quick statements, especially because of the LGBTQ community and what we're going to be talking about today. Number one, it's absolutely impossible to cover everything in this topic, especially the things that might matter to you personally, which is why we want you to ask questions and kind of engage with us in this conversation. Um, and I know that because I'm going to bring you a lot of stuff today, there may be some, something in you that rises up. Like, yeah, it's your truth source, but my truth source says this, blah, blah. And I just want you to, I want you to hear this. If it's an issue of truth sources and you know, what I'm going to read and what you've heard, and like, we can have that conversation. Just hear me. We can go and have that conversation later on. Now, if it's what Scripture says, because we're going to point you to a lot of Scripture, if you don't line up with Scripture, then you just got to talk to Jesus about it. Don't talk to me, okay? Like, don't even ask me about it. Like, you know, like if it's, if it's Scripture, you got to deal with Jesus. But if it's, you know, truth sources and things, I'm more than happy to engage in the different kinds of conversations. The second thing is this, is that if you personally struggle with this issue of gender or sexual orientation or sexuality um, because of you or because of a family member, 
We know this is not that far from, removed from you guys, whether it's a kid, a parent, a sibling, uh, best friends, close relatives. I want you to know that Jesus loves you and loves them more than I could humanly ever love you or love them. Does that make sense? Just hear that. And everything I'm going to read today, just please listen to it through that lens. That as much as I might say I love you, God loves you more. Here's the, the encounter I want us to walk through today. This is in Mark. Jesus went out to the lake shore again. He was teaching the crowds that were coming to him. Because Jesus was drawing these crowds to him. He says, he walked along and he saw Levi, which is Matthew. If you ever understand the gospel of Matthew, that's who Levi is. He's the son of Alphaeus sitting at the tax collector's booth. Why was he sitting in the tax collector's booth? Anybody know? He was a tax collector. Oh, good. You guys are awesome. All right. You're going to follow along well. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. Later, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. I love the fact that Mark, <laughs> because through Peter says, yeah, there seem to be many of this kind among Jesus' followers, right? He wants them to know, like, this isn't just a few people. There's a lot of people like this. And he goes on to say, but when the teachers of a religious law, who were the Pharisees, saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with, say the words out loud, why does, he, why does he hang out with these, this scum? And immediately Jesus heard this. And he told them, look, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I've come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they're sinners. And again, this is presented to us to help us understand that this is part of what Jesus did in his ministry. You guys know this, from lepers to, to tax collectors and sinners like Jesus sort of was always kind of hanging out with people that the religious leaders didn't like or didn't want to hang out with, or there was always an association battle going on with this. And I know I can't get into it too deep today, but just to help you guys know, if you've been a part of this church, you understand I've used this example before. Uh, tax collectors were their own category of sinners, okay? They were sort of the worst of the sinners, which is why every time it's mentioned, it's sort of mentioned like tax collectors and other disreputable sinners, other sinners. Like there's like regular sinners and then there's like sinner sinners. You guys with me? And they called them tax collectors and sinners. That's the way they would kind of break it up. And of course, nowadays, why? Because the tax collectors, just understand, they were doing what was unthinkable to the Jewish people. To, to take taxes and to, to, to make a profit off of their own people for this pagan Roman government was unthinkable. Now, most of us do not, I say most of us, do not see the IRS this way. So most of us, everybody with me, most of us lose a little bit of, you know, what this means and how that divides it into our culture. But if it were today, if it were today's culture, I really do believe that this would read the LGBTQ and sinners. I might not have done that right. LGBTQ, yeah, and sinners. Because as Christians, we have lumped this group into sort of like the sinners. There's like sinners, and then there's sinners. Does that make sense? That's what we would do, and that's what we have done. And this is the group that Jesus would have been, not just having dinner with and associating with, that we would have been like, what are you doing? But we might have actually even done what they did, which was accuse Jesus wrongly of why he was doing it. And so here's an example. This is Matthew. Jesus is having this conversation with the Pharisees because he knows the Pharisees are struggling with this. And he said, look, John, he's talking about John the Baptist. He's like, look, John didn't even spend his time eating and drinking with people. He was out in the desert eating locusts and wild honey. And you guys thought he was possessed by a demon, right? Because he was so abnormal. He said, but the son of man, on the other hand, comes and feasts and drinks. But then you say... He's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, notice this word is insinuating that Jesus is a friend of, a, 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 an approver of, an affirmer of, a, 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 a supporter of, an ally of friends and sinners. But here's how Jesus responds. But wisdom is going to be shown by, sorry, wisdom is shown to be right by its results. 
And I know that sounds a little confusing. No one talks like that nowadays. But Jesus was basically, basically saying, look, you can, you can blame me or attach that label to me or say that I am, but you're going to know that's not right when the time comes. Like wisdom is going to be shown by its results. It's going to be shown right by its results. Not by this temporary moment where you've called me this, this person. But wisdom is going to be shown right. That's a big, big part of Jesus' response. So today we're going to look at what does the fullness of grace and truth look like when addressing the LGBTQ tension around the church and around Christians. Now, I want you to know I've been studying this for the last couple months, knowing that this has been a big part of the series. We're going to develop a whole Sunday just to this. Um, and I want you to know that when you, you know how it is when you have, buy a red car and then all you see are red cars on the highway. You guys with me on that? I don't know. I don't, there's a psychological term for that. Um, but as I was kind of studying and just kind of just engrossed in this, I got to be honest, I just noticed so much more in our culture. I'm just going to give you a few things I noticed. This is Tracy and I walking around uh, Coles and Barnes and Noble this week. Go ahead and go to the, to the pictures here. This is uh, Coles, just a little pride, you know, thing. Uh, I I'd probably would have never seen it before, just sitting in one of the aisles. Go to the next one. Uh, that's uh, Barnes & Noble, a whole section in Barnes & Noble, lots of different things, you know, about, you know, UBU and love and Pride Month and things like that. Um, my news feed started to pop up probably because I was researching things and, you know, how Facebook and them are is just Apple, you know, if you're researching things, oh, you must love it, yeah. you know? You looked up squirrels the fly, let me show you everything, you know? <laughs> Well, this is an actress. This is, uh, this is um, sorry, uh, Janelle Monet. She's an actress. You know, just talking about basically she grew up in a Christian home and that God, she really just feels like God is so much bigger than the, than the, than the binary term. She actually was called pansexual for a while, but now she refers to herself as, as non-binary. Here's one that I saw as well. It was very interesting to read. Um, this, is, this is a surgeon in Indiana who was getting ready to put a womb inside of a trans man um, so that we could start this process of men becoming pregnant. Um, now, I didn't already know this. It said first operation, but that's not true. They actually already tried this once, and it didn't take, and the, and the man died. Um, but they, were, they, 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 they got to figure it out, and they're going to try to do this, right? Sometimes I, I, it, was my, it, was, it wasn't my news feed. It was my friend's news feed, which is why you see here, this is a picture I had to pull from my friend's uh, feed because I... Uh, I couldn't get my own. Go ahead and go to the next one. Uh, this was a, somebody complaining about Netflix uh, because there was a new documentary or a new show. Sorry, not documentary. It's so wrong to say that. It's, it's done in the, that kind of style, but it's a new show about an intersex, intersex man, woman, and I'll explain what that is in a minute if you don't know, um, getting pregnant and then having to face all the stereotypes and things like that. And it's pretty popular. It's on the top 10, or at least was a couple weeks ago on uh, Netflix. And then, um, <laughs> this one showed up on Pastor Don's newsfeed, and he sent it to me immediately. I'm so thankful for it. Uh, this is a fictosexual man. He's 38 years old. Uh, he married a hologram, and he's having trouble now communicating with her because the software won't support it anymore, whatever he had. Now, this is a very real deal. This is a 38-year-old man who had a legal marriage that was seen. He's considered fictosexual, which falls under the asexual spectrum. Uh, because he's not attracted to people, but to specific characters, novel and visual characters. And surprisingly enough, I found out they had their own version of the pride flag. So the questions come, what does it mean to be male or female? Are those the only two options? Is it okay for male, men to act like women and women to act like men and be more masculine? Is it, um, what do people with intersex, you know, people born with organs of both male and female, uh, what do we do with that, with those people? What about attraction and orientation? The true sense of if someone really does experience incongruence between their biological sex and who they see themselves to be, a sense of self, who does, which one determines who they are and why? So uh, we have to go back and talk about what defines sex, gender, and sexuality. Um, and I do want to go ahead and tip my hat and talk about some of the research I've done. 
I will give lots of credit to Dr. Jim White in Mecklenburg Church. He's here in Charlotte about how I'm going to approach it today just because I like the way he approaches uh, this particular conversation. I've learned a lot from him and some of his studies over the years of the nuns and Gen Z and things like that. Um, I also, uh, the book that he recommended, I also dove into. It's called Embodied. I'm going to go ahead and show the, show the book real quick. I have, I have a hard time just recommending books. You usually can't recommend books just flat out. Um, obviously, there's things that you can read in a book that you disagree with, and it's not going to be any different for this. Um, but Preston Sprinkle, who wrote this, um, it's called Embodied. We find the subtitle there. And, uh, Transgender Identity is the Church, and what the Bible has to say really does point people to Scripture. Okay, so that's a, that's a big win for me. You know, if you have a book that points people to Scripture and the Word of God, um, even though, if you, you know, I might disagree with something, you might disagree with something, but it's going to be good uh, in terms of some of the research that I've done. So let's do some stuff that we already know that I think most of us in the room will agree on. And I'll do this quickly. I think this is stuff we can mostly agree on. And to be honest, even people in the transgender conversation, in the LGBTQ community, um, they actually agree about this as well when it comes to biological sex. What is, what is that? What does it mean? How is it identified? Go ahead and put that up for me. Biological sex uh, has four primary things. Reproductive organs, sexual anatomy, the endocrine system, which is your hormones, and a presence or absence of a chromosome in the DNA. All right. Now, again, reproductive organs, uh, sexual anatomy, that's usually not a dispute. There are some cases of intersex people, which are people who are born with both. Um, and it's not both fully, it's both of one or more um, atypical features in their sex and in their chromosomes. But 99.98% of people with an intersex condition are statistically a very small percentage of the, of the population. Um, even in that small percentage, they are still biologically male or female. Not no sex, not both sexes. Does that make sense? They are still biologically one or the other. Again, endocrine system, these are the hormones, the testosterone, the estrogen, the things that you know, give atypical features for men and women. And the interesting part about the DNA and the Y chromosome or the absence of the Y chromosome is the fact that it's found at a genetic level. It's found in the DNA. It can be found in your bones. Centuries upon centuries upon centuries later, your bones still carry your DNA and those chromosomes can show up and you can identify sometimes even with just a small fragment if that bone belonged to a biological man or biological woman. And it used to be that this sex and gender and sexuality were kind of synonymous, and yet that's not what we're seeing today, right? Gender's now being separated from biological sex and has to do with psychological and social and cultural aspects. So very quickly, kind of you guys get this, right? The genders, people, when people talk about genders, they're talking specifically about roles or identity or both. Roles primarily being, you know, boys prefer blue over pink and girls, you know, prefer this over this. And, and when there's incongruence or when there's a struggle there, you know, um, doesn't fit into the stereotypes, right? Guy who, a girl who loves football and blue and perhaps is excelling as an engineer, a guy who loves violin over sports, you know, they, it just doesn't resonate in their roles. And so they begin to have this tension of, of gender, Identity is really the psychological aspects of when someone looks in the mirror and sees someone different, right? It suggests that gender is not something that you are born, uh, but it's something you can choose. It's the nature of sexuality. It's something, a role we take on, and then we can disregard the biology or change it if we feel like it. How does the Bible address it? Well, I'm going to give you several verses. Maybe you may want to write these down this morning. Um, but the Bible does talk about gender. It does talk about sexuality. It does actually address these things. So I'm going to run you through about six verses here. Genesis 1 starts with the understanding of biblical sexuality because God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Let's make them to be like us. And they'll reign over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the livestock and all the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that will scurry on the ground and then he said, keep going. So God created human beings to be in their own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. So there's, there's this idea early on that God sort of creates the race and he identifies that race of humans through a biological fact of their men and women. They're male and female. It's a race of men, a race 
of women. And what's important about that is, they, they, is that they identify is that God made them in his image, that they embody the image of God, men and women. And then again, the next, just a few verses later, um, he gives them a very biological statement, right? God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in numbers. You know, get busy and have some fruit. That's what he said, right? And so that's a very biological thing, right? I mean, that's, that, that's a part of it. But just, I hope you understand that it's, not, it's bigger than that because the reality is, is that women, especially hear this as women, is that women who, you know, everybody on earth came through a woman. Everybody with me on that scientific fact? Okay, everybody on earth came through a woman. And that whole idea of her giving birth is part of how she really does express and embody the image of God, of how she was created. Now, some people just don't think that God addresses the whole trans conversation in Scripture because you're not going to find the word trans in, in, in Scripture. But I want to give you a couple Old Testament, New Testament Scriptures just to see what is said about that. In the, in, in the Levitical law in Deuteronomy, <coughs> it says that a man must not put on men's clothing... And a man must not wear, oh, sorry, a woman must not put on men's clothing, and a man must not wear women's clothing. Anyone who does this is, say the word out loud, it's detestable in the sight of the Lord your God. Now, why was this the case? And I want you to understand this is, don't get lost in the context of men's clothing. Religions have done this in the past, you know, where men only could wear this and women could only wear and Just don't get lost in the clothing. Well, I wear t-shirts. I love t-shirts. You know, that's, it's fine. The heart of this is, again, going back to, is a man intentionally trying to present himself as a woman? Is a woman intentionally trying to pass herself off, intentionally dress and present herself as a man? It's seen, and, and across the board, is seen as detestable in the eyes of God. Why? Okay, just hear again why. Because it violates the image of God that embodies his creation of men and women. The New Testament, Paul says it this way. It's a little bit, you got to do a little bit of digging, but he goes on to 1 Corinthians 6. He said, look, don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin, and he goes on to list three specifics. He says, who commit adultery, okay, that's sexual sin, are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality, that none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. He's talking specifically about those three things there. But and we know that's not a conclusive list, but he goes on to talk about why did you mention these three things? Because in our mind, especially in our day and culture around the world, male prostitutes exist. They do. But in this day and time, this context, this Greek interpretation has everything to do with the temple of Aphrodite. And in, in, in Ephesus, it was the temple of Diana. All right. And it was men posing as women. In order, to be, in order to prostitute themselves into that act. So the reason Paul calls it out is, again, because it defies and violates the image of God. It, it violates his created, embodied image in us. Now, some people have gone down the rabbit trail uh, over maybe the last decade or so about the word homosexual, where Paul uses that word. Well, that was a different word. It meant something different. Uh, some rich, white, conservative guy put that in the, in the 1940s, you know, made change the Bible, change the wording. And, and, and I'll, here's the deal. I don't argue with every little nit, nit, nitpicky thing that people come to. I just always find scripture and go to, yeah, but what about this? So Romans 1 is where Paul kind of at the preschool level talks specifically about homosexuality. He says, look, I abandoned them to their shameful desires, and the women turned against the natural way of having sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned for lust with each other. Men did shameful things with other men. And as a result of this sin, because the Bible does call it a sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Why? Because the Bible wants us to understand that it was always the action, it was always the response to things that was being judged. It was always the response to things that, that, was, that was under our fleshly nature or our spiritual nature. Now, very, very important to hear, for you to hear it. At no point, at least as far as I've studied and seen, did, does God ever condemn a homosexual? But he does condemn the act and the activity. 
I have to believe the same is true for men and women who may struggle there in that time. He said, he didn't say, I struggle, I, I, I condemn you, it's detestable that you think that way. You know, he said, it's detestable when you try to present yourself that way, when you respond that way. Does that make sense? It's very important to hear that. And then some people have argued, well, Paul does say that sexual sin is worse. That's why we consider the LGBTQ and the sexual and all, that's worse. But you really need to understand what he was saying when he said that. As a matter of fact, I love this. This is the message paraphrase of that same verse. It says, look, there is a sense in which some sexual sins are different from others. He does acknowledge. But the reason they're different is it violates the sacredness of our own bodies. These bodies that were made for God-given and God-modeled love. Why are those sins viewed differently? Because of what they do to us and how they violate that image-bearing body that God gave you and created you with for a purpose. Now, I want to take just about a few minutes, understand, maybe, maybe five or six minutes. It's going to get a little clinical. It's going to get really educational. I'm going to read a bunch of stats to you and a bunch of things that I, I just need to fast-forward us to where we are today in the conversation, and why. Okay, everybody with me? Just where we are today. I mean, I can't give the history. I just got to fast forward us to where we are today, and why is this gender and, 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 and all this conversation happening at such an alarming rate? Why is it so much more prevalent today than it even was a decade ago or two decades ago? And I need to kind of walk us there, all right? Um, this is a statistic from the Diagnostic, of, uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. This is done by the American Psychiatric Association. Just so you understand that in 1980, they classified sort of what we would term trans as transsexualism. That's what it was called. That's how it was treated. That's how it was dealt with. In 1992, however, they changed it to Gender Identity Disorder. Okay, they wanted to change the idea that, no, look, this really is more to do with someone's identity. In 2013, they basically renamed it again as gender dysphoria, which is, identifies as just a discomfort of your assigned gender. Now, you may not think that's a big deal, but in just shy of three decades, that's a huge transition from how even the, uh, the, the psychologist addressed something that was supposed to be something to be treated and managed versus something that was meant to be affirmed and enabled. How many people suffer from true gender dysphoria? About 0.005%. Now, that's not to, to minimize that it's a very real thing. That's just to help you understand the, the percentage of, of that. It's very, it usually happens when they're very young, when people are very young. There's a very strong identity issue. Again, they look in the mirror, they see something different. It's not a, a roles thing because of how young they are. It's not a roles thing. It's an identity thing. And it's often sometimes naturally corrected after puberty because of the acknowledgement of the powerful work of hormones, right? The powerful work of hormones on the psychology oftentimes in true gender dysphoria corrects that, naturally corrects that. So it's a small number, but it's very real. However, today, gender dysphoria is at 0.005%, but there's something new called rapid onset gender dysphoria. And even though 0.005 of the population would claim this, they, they, the social scientists have started, social and cultural scientists have started looking at a specific generation, Generation Z, those born between 1995 and 2010, essentially those that are 12 years old to 27 years old. They are running headfirst in what they call sexual flu fluidity. And guys, 15.9%, one in every six. Gen Z identifies in some way as LGBTQ. They are, vast majority of them are female, and the vast majority of them claim to be bisexual, or non-binary non and bisexual. This comes from a refusal of homosexual and heterosexual labeling, right? Male and female, the idea that labels are repressive, sexuality should be free, let me just give you another quick statistic. At the Tavistock Center in London, this is the primary gender clinic in London, in 2009, they served and supported and helped 17 females. In 2019, 1,740. 
That's 5,000% increase in females in 10 years, in a decade. That is what this rapid onset gender dysphoria that we are dealing with as a culture. Everybody with me on this? There is a real gender dysphoria. We are also looking at this rapid onset gender dysphoria. Let me give you the signs of those. What they're studying and seeing, because they, I mean, guys, you know, one out of every six, the social, social and cultural people just needed to figure this out. Why is, why is Gen Z all of a sudden just, you know, what, was it something in the food? You know, what, what, what is it? Here's what they found. For ROGD, he said no signs of, ge- of, of gender dysphoria showed up at an early age, meaning they did, they did not struggle with it in a typical fashion. Social influences and pressures, right, were also present, meaning they had friends, they had schools, it was introduced to them. There were also community benefits and belonging, meaning they had sub- tr- sub- tribe support, a tribe support and popularity in their decisions. They also experienced heavy online social media activity, meaning heavier than normal, around the time they were coming out. And here's the huge one, guys. It always accompanied mental health issues. 69% of them were diagnosed issues. Diagnosed issues. Let me give you a breakdown of that 68%, 68% diagnosed. Previous trauma, non-suicidal self-injury, which is like cutting and things like that. ADHD, OCD, eating disorders, depression, anxiety, bipolar. All present, all ignored by professionals. All ignored. And what I hate that's unreported right now is that social scientists and cultural scientists are, are looking right now and seeing that the medical, those who medically transition are actually the ones who are at a considerably higher risk for mortality and suicidal behavior and psychological morbidity than the rest of the population. Why? Because transitioning didn't solve anything. Because they weren't actually dealing with gender dysphoria. Yet children are being encouraged to come out as transgender as early as possible, often connected with peer pressure, internet encouragement, mental health issues, and and parents who feel pressure to immediately put them on cross-hormone therapy, which, by the way, is being presented to them falsely that they are well, you know, the the medicines are well-studied and safe. I want to quote this this op-ed piece at length because I feel like, again, this is important to see. These are non-Christians who wrote this op-ed piece in in the Wall Street Journal Colin Wright, he's an evolutionary biologist. Emma Hilton is a developmental biologist. The name of the article, because you want to look it up, Dangerous Denial of Sex. Let me just read this. Increasingly, we have seen dangerous and anti-scientific trends towards the outright denial of biological sex. In humans, as in most plants or organisms, biological sex corresponds to one or two distinct types of reproductive anatomy. In humans, reproductive anatomy is unambiguously male or female at birth more than 99.98% of the time. No third type of sex cells exist in humans, and therefore there is no sex spectrum or additional sexes beyond male and female. Sex is binary. This is most valuable, sorry, the most vulnerable to sex denialism are children. When they're taught that sex is grounded in identity instead of biology, sex categories can become conflated with regressive stereotypes of masculinity and femininity, Masculine girls and feminine boys may become confused about their own sex. The dramatic rise of gender dysphoric adolescence, especially in young girls, in clinics, is, is a, they reflect this new cultural confusion. The large majority of gender, gender dysphoric youths eventually outgrow their feelings of dysphoria during puberty. Why? Because the hormones are so powerful. But affirmation therapies that insist a child cross sex identity should never be questioned. And puberty blocking drugs advertise as a way for children to buy time to sort out their identities only solidify feelings of dysphoria, setting them on a pathway to more evasive medical interventions and permanent infertility. The pathologizing of sex atypical behavior is extremely worrying and regressive. Let me just take a break from that. So let's go back to, as we get ready to close, let's go back to 
church and the LGBTQ community. How are we engaging in this conversation? How are we responding to this rapid onset gender dysphoria? I mean, you have family members, friends. I mean, it's not one, or one to three degrees of relationship away from you. We're not talking about an agenda or some they that you don't know and don't see. I'm talking about personal stuff. How are you responding? How are Christians responding? Well, the problem is, is that typically, at least I would say, in the last few decades, as long as I've been alive, I've seen two primary responses that are both wrong. Just hear me. They're both damaging. It goes like this. Well, we judge people. We condemn them, right? You know, you don't have to go very far to see examples of this. Just type in Westboro Baptist Church, okay? You do not have to go very far to find Christians and people who carry the Christian flag or slap the Christian bumper sticker on their name who are are waging war of hatred to anyone in the LGBTQ community. There is no love there at all. Only judgment, only condemnation. You don't have to go far. And and listen, most people don't experience that. Most people just live in that sort of secret little world where, that secret little realm where we sort of judge them as worse than others. That's what we do. Or we try to rationalize it. No, go back. We try to rationalize it and try to affirm it because we want to love people. Because Christians have a huge desire to do exactly what God called us to do, which is to love our neighbors as ourselves, which is to love, you know, love people the way Christ loved us. Like, that's, that's what we're called to do. But what's happening is that people start to rationalize it and make excuses for God, trying to figure out how it didn't say what it actually said. It didn't mean what it actually meant. Because we can't figure out how to justify it, so we just justify that it, it probably doesn't matter so that we can affirm people in their choices, people in their identities, people who are struggling, people who don't struggle at all, just so we can affirm them because that's what it means to love them. That's what we've been told. One example of this is Jen Hatmaker. She's an author and a blogger, and many of you guys know Brandon, her husband. Um, she came out several years ago to try to affirm and explain away the Bible. God didn't mean it that way. That's not the way it's written. That's not what it's meant. She was quoted at one point talking about her view on gay marriage being holy. And she said, look, faithfulness trumps gender. Whether heterosexual or homosexual, sex is designed for monogamous marriage of two individuals who sacrifice for one another. Is Jen Hatmaker a believer and follower of Christ? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I've read her statement of faith. I've, I've seen a lot of her stuff. Like, she, she, she is, as far as I can tell. I absolutely disagree with her on this issue. Do you guys with me? I absolutely disagree with her. I, the idea that we have to explain away and excuse away what God calls a sin. Now, for her, it was very personal. Her daughter was gay. She has a lot of followers that she felt the need to affirm. And her and her husband spent a year, they self, self-proclaimed, they spent a year just trying to figure it out and landed on a conclusion that I absolutely do not agree with. I do not see it in Scripture. This is the quote, a quote I want to give you that I heard last week. This is from Dr. Crawford uh, Loretz. He said, the gospel is our unity. He's just talking about what brings Christians together. The church cannot be recruited with social and political movements. Everybody with me? We are not your allies. We are the alternative. Okay, this, this, this is right up the heart of Jesus' alley. Every time Jesus was asked to pick a side, Jesus went, I'll tell you one better, I'm going to take over. Right? Every time Jesus was asked to pick a side in culture, he said, I got one better for you, I'm the king. There's an alternative. We're not allies in this movement. And he goes on to say this, that our whole lives are to be organized around the character of God and the content of Scripture that's come from his book, Unshaken. Whole lives are organized around the content of God and the character, so the content of Scripture and the character of God. The worst trend I've seen to date, 
and I'm going to try to wrap this up in just a minute. The worst trend I've seen to date is this growing desire for people to merge and marry and consolidate. Go ahead and go to the next slide. Consolidate the desires of their flesh and their personal faith so that they can worship God. Now, I, I kind of put this as a lowercase g-o-d just so you understand, I am not talking about the God we are worshiping today. I'm talking about a growing movement of people who want to take the desires of their flesh, the, the things that they are like, I don't care what the Bible says, I don't care, this is who I am, this is what I am, and they take their personal faith, meaning they have an, they have an understanding of, of the Bible, they have an understanding of faith, probably because they were raised in the church, and they want to bring it together so that they too can worship God, but it is not the God we worship, it is a God in their own image. I want to show you a very quick two-minute video clip, a video that will disturb you, no doubt. Um, I have to give you a little bit of warning for it first. I feel the need you need to see it because I need you to know this is Duke University over here in Wake Forest, North Carolina. It's Duke University. It is their first it is their first worship experience as Duke Divinity Pride. And I'll preface this by giving you the first sentence of the video so that you understand what we're getting ready to watch. The first sentence of the video is, good morning, the holy and queer one be with you. Let's watch it together. Good morning, the holy and queer one be with you. Good morning and welcome to worship. My name is Caroline Camp. I use she, they pronouns. Thank you all for being here at the first ever Divinity Pride worship collaboration. We at Divinity Pride want to create a worship space that honors and celebrates all of our unique and good identities. To affirm everyone to be who they truly are to step into the Holy One's fire that burns away all that says we are not good enough and refines us by the Pentecostal fire to be who exactly the great queer one calls us to be. Would you please stand, step into this worship space and pray with me the words found in your bulletin and on the screen. Strange one, fabulous one, fluid and ever becoming one. Do not allow us to make our ideas of you into an idol. You are as close to us as our own breath, and yet your essence transcends all that we can imagine. You are mother, father, and parent. You are sister, brother, and sibling. You are drag queen and trans man and gender fluid incapable of limiting your vast expressions of beauty. Embodied in us, your creation, we recognize our flesh in all its forms is made holy in you. With thanksgiving, we celebrate your manifestation in all its glorious forms. So the only response I have to that video, I'm going to read Paul's words to the church in Rome. Chapter 1, it says, they invent new ways of sinning. They know God's justice requires those who do these things deserve to die. And yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. I, I see a video like that. I was, it came across my feed and I, I just, my, my stomach was sick. I was turned it wasn't my first thought, but I eventually got there. The prayer that Jesus said on the cross where he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then the problem that continued to stir in me is that, well, I think they do know what they're doing. And they chose to do it anyway. Which then at that point, I have no choice but to go, God, have mercy. They may not deserve it, but have mercy. Here is where our convictions lie, and I'm going to kind of take us in. There are two truths that we cannot get away from, God's justice and holiness condemns our sin, rightfully so. He is the judge, he condemns, 
He judges our sin. It is His righteousness, it is His holiness, it is His justice that requires it. Truth, absolute truth. Absolute truth. It's God's love and His grace that forgives our sins. Can I get an amen on that one? Yeah. See, both of these things are true. You cannot have one without the other. And when you try to have one without the other, you are going to have a false gospel and you are going to worship a false God and it is going to be sacrilegious. Everybody with me? You have to embrace that both of these things are true. That, they, that, that he is going to call sin a sin. And I get it. I've told you this before. People say, well, I don't like it. You know, I've had people in my office, Matt, there's nothing you can say. I don't even care what the Bible says. I, I'm never going to be able to call that a sin with my brother and my sister and my best friends. And I cannot call it a sin. And I, you know, part of me just wants to go, well, suck it up. You know, like join the club. I don't like it when God calls my junk sin either. But guess what? We are not who we feel we are. We are not who we think we are. And Lord knows we are not who we say we are. We are who he says we are. And if you do not have that conviction, then I promise you, you're going to go off the rails in how you respond in this. He is the judge. He calls it sin. I do not have to make excuses for that. I do not have to rationalize it. That's what it is. But we have a savior whose love and grace forgives our sins. He came, right? He came for those who were sick, for those that needed a savior. The part of the video that got me the most was that, oh, he, he makes our flesh holy. No, he does not. He tells us our flesh is horrible. He makes our spirit holy. And one day in glorification will glorify us and we'll have a new body and our flesh will be holy again. Here's a few scriptures. Romans 8. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. That's what the sinful nature does. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about the things that please the Spirit. Go to verse 7. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. Always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws and it never will. You are not controlled by that sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. This is Galatians. This is also Paul to the church in Galatia. You've been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but you don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. You don't, you don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature because you don't want to tell the gay person in your life that it's a sin. No, you have to do that in love. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. We speak the truth in love. It's from Ephesians 4, 15. And we express the kindness and tolerance and patience, which is that following chapter, Romans 2, verse 4. Even when we're standing firm in disagreement to an opposing belief, what does that love look like? Well, I'm going to read this as we close out. That love looks like this. This is from 1 John 4. No one has ever seen God Okay? No one has ever seen God. But if we love each other, God lives in us, and his love is brought to full expression in us. God is love. And all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. That love has no fear. Because perfect love expels all fear. If we're afraid, it's for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. How in the world do we do that? How in the world do we accomplish that kind of love? Especially for the LGBTQ people in our lives. When we have to speak the truth in love, when we have to express kindness and tolerance and patience even when we have to stand in disagreement. Well, I have two ideas that I think are probably going to happen. One is that 
well, before that, ultimately just hear the fact that God is love in you when you are in Him. And when you're not in Him, it goes on to say it's not, it's not the kind of love that, that people are going to receive from Him. It's not, the, it's not that kind of love. So it's not the kind of love that gets touted. I mean, let's just be honest. The LGBTQ movement waves the banner of love probably a little even bit better than Christians currently do. Okay, they're all about love on the surface. But it's not this kind of love. It's not the God is love. Love. So just understand that as you're walking with the Holy Spirit and you're trying to engage in these conversations, you're trying to speak the truth in love, and you're trying to express kindness and tolerance and patience as he's called you to do, especially when it's hard, especially to those that you disagree with that stand and oppose to the Word of God, you're still called to love them. You are. He's going to judge them because that's what he does. He judges sin. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants them to hear the gospel. He wants them to be saved. He wants, he wants you to point them to the absolute hope of Jesus every single opportunity you and I have. That's our job. Two things are probably going to happen. I'm just go ahead and give them to you. <laughs> Number one, um, there's a really good, strong chance that people in your life are going to feel like you hate them because you simply won't affirm their LGBTQ life. Even though you say you want to love them, and even though you say you're going to love them, they're not going to hear it. They're going to hear nothing but bigotry and hatred. And all I want to say to you is, listen, Jesus, people accuse Jesus of being a drunk and a sinner. But Jesus said that wisdom is shown to be right by its results. Time will tell if you really love people or if you just say you love them but secretly judge them. Time will tell. If you're going to come back to the, to, the, to the opportunity every single time with open hands, with mercy, with grace, and say, I love you. I, I can't affirm it. I can't condone it, but I love you. Time will tell. Second thing is that there's a very strong chance that when you love people the way God calls you to love people, because God is love, that other Christians are going to say that you are wrong. And that you're affirming them, even though you're not affirming or condoning or approving behavior. And you have to remember that people accuse Jesus of being a friend to tax collectors and sinners, that he was also affirming them in their sin. But Jesus said that wisdom is going to be shown by, right by its results. Time's going to tell if you really are speaking the truth and love to them, if you're finding ways to point them to absolute hope while expressing kindness and tolerance and patience and doing all that you can to help them understand that you disagree, but are going to try to love them nonetheless because it's what we've been called to do. No, it's not the answer you wanted to hear this morning. It doesn't tie it up in a neat little bow. It doesn't give you a formula for how to fix the problem. I'm not called to fix the problem. God's going to fix the problem eventually. I'm called to love people. Let's pray together. God, this is a, an extremely difficult thing especially when it comes to family members and friends and people that are close to us, that we love unfailing love and might disagree because of what Scripture says, might disagree because of what your absolute truth says. And we just don't know how to speak the truth in love and express kindness and tolerance and patience without giving them the kind of love they demand, which is affirming. Oh, God, please, by your Spirit, just lead us carefully through those conversations. Help us remember what we're called to do regardless. Whether something comes at us that is full of sacrilege and abomination in terms of how it stands against you, like that video we saw today, God, just give us patience and grace and a heart of mercy to want those people to see you for who you really are, not for who they've made you to be. Oh, God, I wish these were simple solutions. And yet, our trust in you, our hope is in you, that your spirit will guide us in every conversation and every day to make the decision that shows people that we can love them as you've called us to love because you are love, even if we have to stand in disagreement. And we pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen.